This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case book Computer Aided Exercises in Civil Procedure by Roger C. Park and Douglas D. McFarland. The casebook is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute the contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Civil Procedure Lectures. This is part five, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about discovery. So prior to the effective date of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure in 1938, common law and code procedures generally assigned pleadings the tasks of giving notice of the nature of the case, narrowing issues for trial, separating groundless claims, and revealing the facts of the case. Beyond the pleadings, the attorney had few or no formal devices for investigation of the opponent's case. Effective advocacy relied on keeping the opponent in the dark about the details of the case and items of evidence until the attorney could spring surprises at trial. This system was called the Sporting Theory of Justice in Tiedman versus American Pigment Corporation in 1958. The drafters of the federal rules intended to narrow the function of the pleadings to notice giving only and to allow the discovery devices to handle the other work of shaping the case for trial. Consequently, discovery today under the federal rules has three purposes. One, to narrow the issues. Two, to obtain evidence for use at trial. And three, to secure information about the existence of evidence that may be used at the trial. In order to promote the general goal of the federal rules, the discovery devices are designed to reduce the ability to keep the opponent in the dark and to spring surprises at trial. Of course, discovery is self-starting and self-propelled, except for certain required initial disclosures. Some attorneys do not engage in extensive discovery in some cases, and some cases may not ask the correct discovery questions, so surprises still occur at trial. But the adoption of the discovery devices has given the careful, thorough attorney the ability to minimize or even eliminate such tactics by the opponent. While the discovery system of the federal rules remains popular, some critics have always existed. In the past three decades, the critics have primarily pointed to the large costs of litigation. The heavy costs of discovery can lead to the abuse of discovery 
to prevent the pursuit of meritorious claims, to force nuisance settlements of non-meritorious claims, or to delay the processing and termination of litigation through the courts. In general, say the critics, discovery as now practice burdens society with unnecessary, non-productive expense. This perception of abuses resulted in substantive amendments to the discovery rules. Some of these changes were designed to give federal judges additional control over discovery, especially in complex cases, through pretrial conferences and discovery orders. The 1993 amendments for the first time required initial disclosure of information without any discovery request. The 2000 amendments narrowed the scope of discovery, and the 2006 amendments attempted to make discovery of electronically stored information easier. By and large, however, despite these criticisms and adjustments, the basic philosophy of discovery under the federal rules has not been substantially altered since 1938. The rules are intended to allow free and open discovery so that each side can become completely informed about the opponent's case to the end of informed settlement or decision on the merits. Now moving to the scope of discovery. The broad scope of discovery is set forth in Federal Rule 26B1, stating, quote, Parties may obtain discovery regarding any non-privileged matter that is relevant to any party's claim or defense, including the existence, description, nature, custody, condition, and location of any documents or other tangible things, and the identity and location of persons who know of any discoverable matter. For good cause, the court may order discovery of any matter relevant to the subject matter involved in the action. Relevant information need not be admissible at the trial if the discovery appears reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. All discovery is subject to the limitations imposed by Rule 26B2C. Note the rule restricts the scope of discovery to matters that are relevant to any party's claim or defense. Prior to amendment in 2000, the rule allowed discovery of matters relevant, quote, to the subject matter involved in the pending action, end quote. This broader scope of discovery is now allowed by the rule only on order of the court for good cause shown. This amendment, too, responded to concerns of overly broad discovery and possible abuse, specifically to disallow discovery to develop new claims or defenses not already pleaded. On the one hand, the rule specifically eliminates some possible objections to discovery. The attorney may discover material either to explore the opponent's case or to support the attorney's own case. The names of persons having knowledge, typically witnesses, to the occurrence in question must be revealed. An opponent cannot object that the material to be discovered would be inadmissible at trial. For example, hearsay, if the information is itself relevant and will likely lead to admissible evidence. 
On the other hand, the scope of discovery is not unlimited. Federal Rule 26 places several limits on discovery. Rule 26B1 provides matters that are privileged or irrelevant are not discoverable. Rule 26B2A gives the court broad authority to alter the rules. Rule 26B2C Romanet 1 authorizes the court to limit discovery that is, quote, unreasonably cumulative or duplicative, end quote, or that, quote, can be obtained from some other source that is more convenient, less burdensome, or less expensive, end quote. Rule 26B3 gives protection to work product. Rule 26B4 governs discovery from experts. And Rule 26C, dealing with protective orders, also contains general limits designed to keep discovery from becoming burdensome or oppressive. Now moving to privilege. Privilege matter is outside the scope of discovery. The law of evidence provides privileges, and the law of the state where the federal court sits must be consulted to determine privileges the state law recognizes, at least in federal court cases founded on diversity of citizenship. Commonly accepted privileges include attorney-client, spousal, clergy-penitent, doctor-patient, government secrets, and informers. Less common privileges include psychotherapist-patient, accountant-client, and journalist-source. Some few states recognize other privileges, including dentist-patient, chiropractor-patient, or nurse-patient, social worker-client, and others. A common occurrence in a deposition is that an attorney will object to a question and then tell the witness to answer. Such an objection, perhaps to the form of the question or to material that will be inadmissible at trial, is then on the record. Should the deposition be utilized at trial, the judge can then rule on the objection. When a question calls for privileged material, the attorney may properly object and instruct the witness not to answer, for the material sought is beyond the scope of discovery. And relevancy. Irrelevant material is outside the scope of discovery. Again, the law of evidence supplies our guide. Quote, Relevant evidence means evidence having any tendency to make the existence of any fact that is of consequence to the determination of the action more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. End quote. This is Federal Rules of Evidence, Rule 401. The definition of relevant evidence in the federal rule combines two common law evidence concepts, materiality and relevancy. Materiality is the portion of the rule that says any fact that is of consequence to the determination of the action. In other words, the fact to be proved must be raised in the case by the pleadings. For example, assume in a tort case, plaintiff's attorney, by interrogatory, asked defendant to reveal the location and amount of its bank accounts. Certainly, the answer sought 
has nothing to do with the issue of liability or compensatory damages. Whether a defendant may be able to pay a judgment is not of consequence to whether the defendant is liable for damages. Accordingly, the fact is immaterial under the common law and therefore irrelevant under Federal Evidence Rule 401. The result depends on whether the pleadings have raised an issue of punitive damages. With no such issue, the question is irrelevant and outside the scope of discovery. With a demand for punitive damages made on the pleadings, the plaintiff will be entitled at trial to inform the jury members of the amount of defendant's wealth so they will know how much money will be required to punish the defendant adequately. The size of the defendant's bank account would be relevant and so within the scope of discovery. Relevance is the portion of the rule that refers to more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. In other words, the evidence has a tendency in logic to prove what it is offered to prove. In general, consistent with the policy of a broad scope of discovery, the courts have interpreted relevance generously, quote, to encompass any matter that bears on or that reasonably could lead to other matter that could bear on any issue that is or may be in the case, end quote. This is from Oppenheimer Fund versus Sanders. Of course, this statement was made prior to the 2000 Amendment to Federal Rule 26B, narrowing the scope of discovery by restricting it to matters relevant to the party's claims or defenses. But the amendment does not change the definition of relevance. Now moving to trial preparation materials. An immunity from discovery of litigation materials prepared or formed by an adverse party's counsel in the course of his legal duties was created by the Supreme Court in Hickman v. Taylor in 1947. This work product immunity is qualified, not absolute, and can be overcome by a showing by the adversary that production of those facts is essential to the preparation of one's case. Oral statements are even more difficult to obtain, since they embody even more of the lawyer's thought processes. The purposes of the work product doctrine, as envisioned by the court, prevent a free ride on the opponent's investigation and protect the adversary system. Now moving to trial preparation relating to experts. Properly stated, there is no additional limit on the scope of discovery for expert witnesses. But the federal rules do place special limits on the methods that may be used to discover expert testimony. Rule 26b-4 differentiates between experts who may be called to testify at trial and experts employed only for trial preparation. The latter type of expert's opinion is discoverable only upon showing exceptional circumstances under which it is impracticable for the party seeking discovery to obtain facts or opinions on the same subject by other means. 
the opinion of an expert who may testify is more readily available. Prior to 1993, the opinion of a trial expert could be obtained only by interrogatory to the imposing party, possibly supplemented by other discovery as agreed to by stipulation or as ordered by the court. After the 1993 amendments, the name and a detailed report of the expert, including the expert's opinion, supporting information, exhibits, qualifications, and prior testimony, are part of the initial disclosures required to be made to the opponent without request. Subsequent to receipt of the report, the opponent may take the expert's deposition. Now moving to the topic of protective orders. The court has the power to make a protective order, to limit discovery, to protect a party or person from annoyance, embarrassment, oppression, or undue burden or expense. The rule then suggests eight ways in which the courts may limit discovery. Some of the protections ordered by courts under this rule include designating a time or place for discovery, requiring a certain method of discovery, prohibiting inquiry into certain matters, limiting the amount of discovery, and protecting the confidentiality of material discovered. Now moving to the topic of required disclosures. From adoption of the federal rules in 1938 until 1993, discovery was always self-starting. A party could do as much discovery as the rules allowed, or little or nothing. No party was required to reveal anything except in response to a proper discovery request. This procedure changed with the adoption of required disclosures by amendment to Rule 26 in 1993. Now, Federal Rule 26A requires parties to disclose certain categories of information without request and by a definite timetable. The idea is that this basic information will be subject to request anyway, and requiring disclosure saves time and expense both to the parties and to the court. Additional discovery proceeds by request, as it always has. Three categories of information must be disclosed. Each has its own timing provision. Within 14 days after a meeting of the parties to discuss claims and defenses, possible settlement, required disclosures, and discovery necessary in the litigation, each party must disclose the name, address, and telephone number of persons who are likely to have discoverable information the disclosing party may use to support its claim or defenses. Documents the disclosing party may use to support its claim or defenses. A computation of damages claimed and insurance agreements. Nine categories of proceedings, such as habeas corpus petitions and student loan collections, are exempted from the required disclosures. Second, within the time specified by the court, Each party must disclose the name and a report of each expert to be called to testify at trial. And third, at least 30 days before trial, each party must disclose the name, address, and telephone number of each witness who may be called, the designation of any witness whose testimony is to be presented by deposition, 
and an identification of each document or other exhibit that it may offer. Now moving to the kind of discovery devices. Any or all of the discovery devices may be employed by the attorney in any litigation. The careful attorney will develop a discovery strategy early in the litigation. Decisions must be made as to which devices are appropriate, what information is necessary, and what sequence of discovery should be used. The most popular discovery device is the oral deposition. A witness is called before a court reporter who administers an oath. The attorney noticing the deposition then takes the testimony of the witness. The attorney opposing the deposition may then also examine. The deposition allows discovery of new information and identifies controverted facts. The deposition of a party may narrow issues by obtaining admissions. A deposition may be taken from any person and is not limited to parties. The huge advantage of the deposition is flexibility. The attorney taking the testimony can follow up with questions about new information or areas where the witness seems hesitant. The deposition also allows the attorney to evaluate both the opponent's witness and the opposing attorney before trial. Should the deponent become unavailable at the time of trial, the deposition may be read into the trial record as former testimony. The primary disadvantage of the deposition is cost, which includes both the expense of the court reporter and the fees of the attorneys taking the deposition. A little-used device is the deposition upon written questions. Again, the deponent is called before a court reporter and sworn, but then the reporter reads a list of questions previously submitted by the attorney and records the answers. A great deal of expense is saved since the attorney does not attend the deposition, but the loss of flexibility and inability to ask follow-up questions makes this discovery device unpopular. Interrogatories are written questions submitted to the opposing party for answers under oath. Interrogatories may be sent only to parties. While the attorney writes the interrogatories, they are still relatively inexpensive compared to the oral deposition. Some attorneys believe that an advantage of interrogatories is more complete answers are given. Since research can be done and the answers can be given after proper consideration. Other attorneys believe that this is a disadvantage since the opposing party can sanitize the answers before they are given. Again, there is no flexibility of follow-up questions. And a request for production of documents allows the attorney to inspect and copy documents and other tangible things, including computer data, in the possession, custody, or control of another party. Although a request for production of documents and things may be sent only to a party, documents in the possession of a non-party may be obtained by the use of a subpoena. Usually, inspection of documents works by agreement of the parties rather than formal request for production. In a complex case, production of documents may involve thousands of hours in inspection of a party's files. 
When the mental or physical condition of a party is in controversy, the courts may order a physical or mental examination for good cause. While a party who claims personal injury clearly places physical condition in controversy, examinations of a party who has not affirmatively put into issue his own mental or physical condition are not to be automatically ordered merely because the person has been involved in an accident. Even so, little showing of good cause is ordinarily required. And in fact, such examinations are typically arranged by stipulation of the attorneys. Requests for admission require the opposing party to admit the truth of any matters within the scope of Rule 26B1 relating to facts, the application of law to fact or opinions about either, and the genuineness of any described documents. This device is designed to verify information and narrow issues for trial and to save expense of unnecessary proof at trial, not to discover new information. And finally, sanctions for failure to make discovery. A party or person from whom discovery is sought may seek a protective order from the court against inappropriate discovery. Absent a protective order, the person refusing to submit to discovery will be subject to a court order compelling discovery, followed by sanctions should the person fail to obey the order. Available sanctions under Rule 37B include treating the failure as contempt of court, striking all or parts of pleadings, preventing the admission of evidence, taking designated facts as established, and awarding expenses of attorney's fees. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.